Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Well, as I said, we are in chapter 8. We left off in the middle of the chapter. Once again, we, we, this is our third week in this particular chapter. And last week, we left really right off in the middle of the account of Peter's mother-in-law uh, being healed. So in our study last week, we saw a centurion servant being healed and then the mother-in-law of Peter being healed. And again, remember for context, Jesus just taught the Sermon on the Mount. He comes down to the bottom of that hill. A man that is full of leprosy approaches him and, and takes up all of his attention. Jesus reaches out his hand. He touches that guy. He then heads off to sort of his relocated hometown of Capernaum, where we mentioned that uh, representatives from a Roman centurion come and say, you know, you should heal my servant. He's a good guy and all these things. He's begging, literally, it says, Jesus to heal one of his servants. And just like he did with the leper, Jesus heals this servant, this time, though, from afar. And then he enters into this home, Peter's home, uh, and there he finds this woman, his mother-in-law, who is sick, as, as Luke says, with a high fever. And with a touch, Jesus heals her as well. And this is quite a day. They're moving along. It's one thing after the other. And what we notice and what we will notice from our passage today is the day is not over. And I think this is important because sometimes we we think the day is over. I'm home. Now I can unwind. I'm going to take off my shoes, put on my pajamas, and the day is over. But the day is not over. And in some cases, the day is just beginning. And so here is Jesus now. He's at his house, and, or at this house, and notice what it says in verse 16. And that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with the word, and he healed all who were sick. And so laboring late into the evening, Jesus is ministering uh, physical healing to scores of people, if not more than that, that are coming from the village and perhaps even beyond. As a matter of fact, here in Matthew, it says in verse 16, they brought to him many. Over in the parallel passage of Mark chapter 1, the, the they is the whole city. So the whole city is bringing anybody that they can find, it seems, that is sick or has some kind of a problem, and the whole city is pressing in on this little home there in Capernaum where perhaps Jesus thought it was time I could take off my sandals, put on my pajamas, and I can relax. And, but there is no time to relax. Now, when we talk about Capernaum, we're not talking about like Philadelphia or New York or something like that. We're not talking about millions of people here, but we are still talking about a lot of people couple hundred people maybe have, um, that live in these cities bringing the sick and they're clamoring, they're pressing in on Jesus. And notice again, verse 16, people were coming to him that were oppressed by demons. And as it says in the passage, he cast out those demons. It also says in the verse that people were coming to him that were sick. And again, it says that he healed them of their sickness. Now let me make a, an important distinction from verse 16. Notice, and the reason why I bring it up is because there are some that will say that all sickness is the result of demonic issues, oppression, possession, or whatever it may be. But notice in this particular passage here that there is a distinction between sickness and demon possession or demon oppression. Matthew makes a clear distinction between the two, that they're two distinct people. 
a person that is oppressed by a demon or possessed by a demon, and we're going to talk a little bit more about demon possession in our next study, but a person that is either oppressed or possessed, they may exhibit symptoms or signs of symptoms or symptoms that look like a sickness, but that does not mean that all sickness is the result of the work of a demon or a demonic force. Again, Matthew makes a distinction between those that were sick and those who were oppressed by demons. So tuck that into the back of your head in case it ever comes up in a conversation or you hear someone teaching about it or whatever. Matthew makes a distinction between the two. Now, let's go on to the next verse, verse 17. Verse 17 is a verse which has caused a little bit of confusion within the Christian church. If you were with us when we were looking at Matthew chapter 7, we referenced this particular verse and how people use this verse to defend their thinking. Let me read the verse. It says, now this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. Now this comes from Isaiah chapter 20, or excuse me, 53. And so Matthew says this fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53 is a wonderful prophecy. It was written about 700 years before this particular passage, and it's a messianic prophecy. If you've never read Isaiah 53, or you probably are familiar with it, but you don't remember the address necessarily, you go back and you look, and it speaks of God's coming Messiah. It speaks of Jesus. And so here is Matthew now saying Jesus is the Messiah. This is a fulfillment of the things that Isaiah the prophet had written about frequently or previously. Now, a frequent interpretation of this verse, particularly among the charismatic wing of Christianity, is that this means that all of our illnesses and all of our diseases will be healed because of Christ's coming. And to an extent, I agree with that statement. I do believe that all of our sicknesses and all of our disease, diseases will be healed because of Christ coming. Where I disagree with perhaps the charismatic wing of things is with the when of all of the, heal, all of the sicknesses and all of the diseases being healed. The charismatic or the Pentecostal, some of them, not all of them, but they will tell you that this refers to the here and the now. That is this side of heaven. That it is God's will that all of us will be healed of our sicknesses and diseases. And to some respect, I can see their argument because the passage says all these people came. He was healing all manner of sicknesses, all manner of diseases. And then he quotes the verse from Isaiah chapter 53. But the problem with drawing this conclusion is that it does not take into account the entire body of Scripture. So it doesn't take into account those believers that were not in sin who ended up getting sick and even dying from their sickness. The full context of God's word informs us that the conclusion drawn from one verse, this one verse, cannot be true. And so it's a lesson for us, it's a reminder for us this morning of the importance of studying the full counsel of God's word and studying it in context. Jesus will indeed heal all manner of sickness and disease, as was happening in this particular instance. But that will not be here necessarily upon the earth until his millennial reign begins. So what was happening here is a taste of what will be accomplished because of Christ's death. Indeed, as the verse says in Isaiah 53, he took our infirmities. Indeed, he bore our transgressions. And yes, he does ransom us back from the wages of our sin, which is sickness 
and death, but ultimately the rewards of his sacrifice will not be experienced until we get to heaven or until heaven comes to us. Now, it does, we do have to ask this question, does Jesus heal anyone this side of heaven? And the answer is yes. And we are instructed to come to him in prayer for those that are sick and infirmed and to pray. But we do not have a promise in the scripture that every person is going to be healed. And so we need to be careful with that teaching. Now let's move on to verse 18. I'm going to read the next four or so verses. It says, when Jesus saw a great crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came, a scribe, excuse me, came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. That's a tough word, isn't it? My goodness, geez. Now, Matthew moves into verse 18. And I think we can form the impression, because it comes right after verse 17, that this was you know, a couple of moments later. That is, that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, then he healed all these people that came to the door, and then this guy comes up to him and says, hey, I'll go with you wherever you go. Um, but the reality is, it's more likely than not that this event is not occurring at the same exact moment that these other events occurred, or shortly after the other events. It, it's more likely sometime later, maybe the next day, maybe the next month, or some period of time later, that Jesus sees a great crowd that is beginning to form. No doubt in the context of things here, they, these people are coming so that they can be healed of their diseases and sicknesses. Um, and it's then that Jesus says, you know what, let's get out of here. Crowd's beginning to form. Jesus looks out, knows the intent of their hearts, and he says, guys, we should get out of here. Now, I ask myself, why would he do that? You got all these people that are coming. They need his help. They're gathering at his door. Some of them perhaps have come a long way to get to where he was at that particular time. And Jesus says, you know what, let's go out the back door and let's get out of here. And the reason why Jesus does that is because Jesus observes that his ministry is becoming something he hadn't intended for his ministry to become. Now, Jesus healed, but he didn't have a healing ministry. And Jesus cast out demons, but he didn't have a deliverance ministry. And Jesus could see that the people were coming to him for the wrong reasons, healing of their physical body instead of healing of their soul. And so seeing the crowd and knowing the intention of their heart, he calls his disciples and he says, get the boats ready. So again, in verse 18, it says, when he saw a crowd, he gave orders to go to the other side. That's to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. You know, as I see this about Jesus, it, it speaks to me a little bit perhaps about ministry as well and leading in ministry as well because how different Jesus' example is, Jesus' example is here from many of the ministries we see perhaps in our day or many that minister in our particular day because Jesus avoids a crowd where everybody else does everything they can to get a crowd or to keep a crowd. And you know, the the forming of a crowd is a dangerous allure. It's so easy to be swayed from our purpose so that we can attract a crowd or so that we don't lose a crowd. But Jesus stays the course, and he knows his purpose, and when circumstances begin to develop that would lead him from de deviating from his purpose, Jesus changes the circumstances. 
And so he says, come on, guys, we're headed to the other side of the river. Now, before he can do that, we read in verse 19 that he was interrupted once again. And this time he's interrupted by a scribe who makes a profession of his willingness to follow Jesus. And beginning in verse 19, again, it said, a scribe came to him saying, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said about that he had nowhere, no home of his own necessarily there. Now, there's a couple of points that I want to make about this. First, notice that Jesus is once again interrupted. Ministry is one of interruptions. Life is one of interruptions. I don't like interruptions. I don't know if you enjoy it, and this is great or whatever, but I'm not a big fan of interruptions. And the reason is this, because I set my mind on what I'm going to do and when I'm going to do those things. And I build my schedule, and I package so tightly that there's no room for interruptions. And I can tell you, you know, if you do the same thing, that's not good. Because, again, we know that interruptions are going to come. And so we need to, as people, we just need to be ready for life's interruptions. We need to prepare ourselves, if you will, mentally for them. And then respond as Christ responds, seeing them as an opportunity for ministry. And so this ministry opportunity comes in the form of a scribe that approaches him. Now, remember this about scribes. Scribes were the religious leaders, some of the religious leaders of the day. And it was the scribes along with the Pharisees and others. They were the experts in the law in the Old Testament. And as we have seen already, just a little bit, and we're going to see quite a bit more as we continue to move through the book of Matthew, oftentimes these religious leaders were at odds and in conflict with Jesus and his teachings and they didn't, because his teachings didn't line up with their teachings. And so here's this scribe, and he comes to Jesus, and he says, I'll go with you wherever you go. Now that sounds awesome, doesn't it? I mean, that's saying something. To go, I'll go with you wherever you'll go. You'll go with me wherever I go. That's, that's quite a statement there. This guy is pretty committed, isn't he? Or so it seems. The scribe is coming to Jesus and saying, I'm willing to be one of your disciples. Now, considering the rift that Jesus often had with religious leaders, he could certainly use an ally in the religious community. Can you, make, can you see that argument there? It'd probably be good to have a guy on the inside that could go back to his other religious leader friends and say, no, no, you got it all wrong. He's a great guy. I've been attending his sessions. He's fantastic. So it would, it would certainly be good for Jesus to have an ally on the inside, sort of an inroad into the religious community. Additionally, here's Jesus. He's the leader of, if you will, a new ministry. And he could certainly use all the followers that he can get. But despite those things, notice how Jesus responds to this would-be follower. In verse 20, he says to him again, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, I read that, I think, what on earth, what, where are you going with this, and why, why are you bringing that up? And I suspect that this fellow is taken aback by the response. I wonder if he was expecting, when he said to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go, he was expecting to Jesus say, now that's what I'm talking about. Everybody see, this is the type of commitment that I'm looking for. Someone that's willing to go wherever that I am. That's the type of people that I need. Instead, Jesus says to him something which ultimately means this. You sure you want to do that? That's what he says to him. He says, I'll go with you wherever you go. Oh, yeah, you sure you want to go with me wherever I go? 
Jesus doesn't say all this, but I think we can put it into what's going on here. He says something to the effect of, sure, lots of people are following me now. And the great crowds are forming now around me. But the reality is this, sir. This isn't going to be easy. I don't even have a home to call my own. Are you sure you want to be my follower? Have you considered or counted the cost of what that entails? Now, we don't have a record of how the man responds to this. The context seems to imply that the guy goes away. But we don't know. He could have said, that's no problem. I just want to go with you wherever you go. But again, the context seems to to imply that he didn't buy in to what Jesus had to say there. We don't know if the guy did or did not follow Jesus, but what we know is this, and this is important, I think, for us this morning. Anyone that wishes to become a follower of Christ is going to do so on his terms. Okay? Anyone who wishes to be a follower of Christ is going to do so on his terms. Jesus is not going to water down his expectations because he is happy to take what he can take or get. You know, I'm just happy to get what I can get. You know, whatever level of commitment you want, that's fine with me. That's not how it works with the Jesus. With, Je- with the Jesus. Here's how it works. I'm the Lord and you are my follower. Take it or leave it. That's how it works with our Lord. And so Jesus really confronts this guy who says, perhaps flippantly without really giving it much thought, I'm in. I'm going wherever you will go. Now, there's another disciple in verse 21 who also approaches Jesus. And he says, Lord, I'm all in. Just let me go home first and bury my father. And we saw the verse there. Jesus responds and he says, look, follow me and let the dead bury the dead. Now, that's cruel and insensitive. What a jerk. How could you say that to someone? Well, there's, and Jesus is not a jerk. I'm saying if that's what he said. On face value, it appears that he is. But there's actually more that is going on here than meets the eyes. At first glance, it seems this poor guy's dad just died. He catches Jesus' attention. He said, look, I'm all in with you, but I got my dad and, and the funeral and the service and all of that stuff. But the reality is this. This guy's father had not actually even died yet. And so when it says, just let me go bury my father first, what it's actually saying is this. Jesus, when my dad dies sometime in the future and I have received my inheritance and I'm all set financially and I have no longer anyone to answer to and my dad's will for my life, then I will come and I will follow you. Now that's very different, isn't it? See, what this man is saying is I want to follow you, just not yet. I want to follow you someday, just not yet. I wonder how many of us put off following the Lord because while we do want to follow him, we just don't want to do so yet. We say to ourselves, look, I want all the benefits of heaven, but I'm too enamored by the pleasures here of earth. We say things like, I'll follow you when I get out of high school. Then we get to college and we get engrossed in our studies or partying. And we tell ourselves, you know, once I get out of college, then I'm going to commit myself to the Lord. And next thing you know, you're out of college and you're trying to get a career going and that takes precedence and then finding a mate and then starting a family and then raising a family and then getting your family through their high school and their college years. And the next thing you know, you're approaching retirement and you look back and you wonder, 
Where's all the time gone? 30 years, 40 years, 50 years has gone by, and you never actually did start following the Lord. You wanted to, just not yet. And before you knew it, time got away from you. Well, what about those that have made a decision to start following the Lord, but the Lord began to call that person deeper? The Lord calls us deeper, doesn't he? That's what the walk of Christ is. That's what it is. He keeps calling us deeper and calling us deeper. And the Lord began to reveal areas in a person's life, maybe in your life. Start doing this. Stop doing that. Lay down this bad habit. Pick up this good habit. He invites the disciple deeper, but the disciple responds, you bet, Lord, but first, I got these other things. And pretty soon the person gets busy and the burden begins to fade And years later, disciple finds themselves in the same place they were when Christ invited them to go deeper with him the first time. And potentially years have gone by and the person has never gone any deeper because they said, yes, Lord, but first. Jesus is making this clear. It doesn't work that way. The Apostle Paul, he would say this. He would say, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the time or the day of salvation. And that idea, that principle, is not just for salvation, but it's for sanctification as well. Today is the day of sanctification. When God speaks, do you listen? When he invites, do you respond in obedience? Or do you put it off? When he says, you know, tell that person over there that I love them and I have a plan for their life, do you? Or do you convince yourself, well, that can't be God? Well, I mean, who, would, who else would be telling you to go tell them that God loves them? It's certainly not the devil. Or do you convince yourself that that can't be the Lord? When God says, you know what, starting tomorrow, I want you to get up early and begin pra- the practice of meeting with me daily each morning. Do you go to bed early? Do you set the alarm? Do you get ready to meet with him early that next morning? Or do you convince yourself that you'll begin doing so next week or next year? I, for the longest time, I convinced myself I'm going to start a daily Bible reading on January 1 in like August. Do you see the foolishness of that? Do it now. Do it right now or do it tomorrow morning, but don't put it off. And sometimes we convince ourselves we put it off. Yes, Lord, I agree with you, just not right now. First, I got other things I want to do. Here's my point. To follow Christ as Lord means that he is Lord and we are not. It means we need to put the following phrase out of our vocabulary, yes, Lord, but first. And as with the first fellow, we don't know how this guy responds. He may have said, you know what, Lord, you're right, and just got going wherever Jesus was going. More likely, it appears he did not. Now, before these interruptions, you recall, Jesus said, come on, guys, let's get in the boat and go to the other side of the river. He told them to get the boats ready, or the uh, sea, I should say, so they can go to the other side to avoid the forming crowds. Now, remember, they are in Capernaum, and I shared with you that Capernaum is sort of at, if you think of the Sea of Galilee like the face of a clock, Capernaum is sort of like 12 o'clock on the face of that clock. Now, the place that they're going in verse 28 is the country of the Gadarenes. That's Gadara. And that, if you think of the face of the clock, we have a map there to kind of show it to you. That's the red bubble. That's kind of like 5 o'clock on the clock. So they're going to go across the Sea of Galilee to get from Capernaum down to Gadara. The Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles from top to bottom when it's not in sort of drought stage, and it's about 7 miles from left 
uh, to write. So this particular trip may be something about 11 or 12 miles that they're going to get on this, bo- this boat and they're going to make their way across the Sea of Galilee. It's a pretty good trip. Notice this also about the trip. It wasn't particularly an easy trip. Starting at verse 23, let me read it to you. It says, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but Jesus was asleep. And they went and they woke him, saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? Now, I showed you some pictures from our last trip to Israel. Let me show you another one. This is the sun rising. Ah, bummer. Hit those lights real fast just so you can see it. They're in the two corners there. This is the sun rising over the Sea of Galilee. Isn't that beautiful? That's from our hotel room. Yeah, you want to come? Anyhow, this is it. What I want to draw your attention to, a couple of reasons. I put it up there for three. You can, leave them one. No, we're not done. Leave them one. It will be cozy time. Just don't doze off. Okay? Three reasons why I put it up there. One is to entice you how beautiful it is so you come with us when we go to Israel in the summer of 2017. Number two, and more importantly, is this. First off, it's dark in this particular picture. The sun is just sort of coming up. But particularly in the front here, it's pretty dark. And that would have been comparable to the darkness that perhaps they were experienced when they were on the boat in the evening. And the third one is I want you to take notice of the size of the sea. Do you see that little picture in the top, that little box in the top left corner? I think we have a red dot. Yeah, you see that? That's a boat. All right, so you see that little boat there? Now that's a boat that could fit like 30 or 40 people. And yet it looks like it's just this little speck that is out there. So the Sea of Galilee is a very large body of water. That boat, you can put the lights back on, thank you. That boat would have held about 30 or 40 people. The boat that we're reading about here may, more likely would have held maybe 10, 12 people. So it's a much smaller vessel even than the one that is in this particular picture in this huge body of water. It's not some little body of water, the Sea of Galilee. Again, it's about 7 miles wide, 13 miles from top to bottom. And there are the disciples out in this huge body of water and notice what it says in verse 24 a great storm arises it goes on to actually say in the verse and the boat was swamped by the waves now some of us see that and we think well who gets on a boat when a storm is coming you fools you know some of us think that because we just have that sort of mindset i guess And I hear what you're saying. But there is something that you should know about the topography of the land and the storm patterns of the Sea of Galilee. I mentioned last week to you that the Sea of Galilee is pretty much surrounded completely by mountains, almost like a almost like a stadium, if you will. You have the seats rising up and the, the playing field would be the Sea of Galilee. It's almost completely surrounded by mountains with an exception of an opening in the north where the city of Capernaum is, the village of Capernaum, and as well as an opening in the south where the water kind of runs out and it goes down into and becomes what we call the Jordan River. And so, because of the mountains and that one opening, the winds and the fronts, and you watch the news and the weather ladies, and man, they talk about the the winds and the fronts that move in and bring storms, and you don't know what they're talking about. It's going to be high. 
I don't know what that means, but there's a frontal high coming in, and we get all worried, and we tell, did you hear about the frontal high? And none of us know what that means, but uh, maybe some of you do. But essentially this, just so you know, because of the ways that there was, because of the fact that there was only one opening, all of the fronts and the winds and all of that, they were funneled, if you will, into the Sea of Galilee. And so what could have previously been a nice, peaceful evening all of a sudden, the wind rips, uh, whips up, and the storms come, and it becomes a pretty dangerous situation. Now, when we were there in Israel on our first trip, we took an evening boat ride. Deb, remember, she's smiling now. We took an evening boat ride on the Sea of Galilee, and it was a lovely evening. And the guy that was hosting us was singing songs, and it was just a fun, wonderful time. And then all of a sudden, it was like Disney World, you know, like cue the storm and the storm came and the waves and everything and it was pouring outside and we're all huddled underneath there and they can just come out of nowhere the storms can come out of nowhere and that's what happened in this particular situation here and it was a significant storm I don't think ours was very significant It, it was almost like like a sun shower even though it was nighttime it just heavy rain and then it was done or whatever, but the waves whipped up nonetheless. Here, these guys are in a significant storm. Now, remember, four of these guys, at least, are established fishermen. We know that Peter, Andrew, James, and John, had that was their business. That was their job. They were fishermen. And they grew up fishing these waters, the Sea of Galilee. So this is not their first time on these waters, and almost certainly it's not their first time, time dealing with a storm like this. But notice in verse 25, even these experienced fishermen are freaking out. You see it there? It says, save us, Lord, we are perishing. So you have to picture the scenario. Out of nowhere, a storm has ripped in. All chaos has broken out. The boat is being tossed all over the place, and the waves are threatening to either encompass the boat, if not uh, overturn the boat. People are screaming. Everyone is running in different directions trying to do something. No doubt, if it's like you and I, this guy is yelling at that guy because he didn't do it right, and he bumped into me, and you're stupid, and all this stuff. And it's just chaos that is going on here. And what's Jesus doing? He's sleeping. (laughs) He's sleeping. If I saw Jesus sleeping in this instance, I think I would have said, hey, get up, buddy. We could use your help here. I can't believe you're sleeping. Now, the Mark account tells us that when they go over to Jesus, they say this, don't you care that we are perishing? A little bit different than what we read here. Here, they're like, save us, we're perishing. There, Mark adds, they say, don't you care that we are perishing? Can you believe these disciples? Can you believe them? What nerve to say to Jesus, don't you care? Now, before you nod your head in agreement, be careful. Don't be quick to judge these guys too quickly because I suspect, like me, each of us here, at one point or another, has been guilty of saying something like, Jesus, don't you care? Or saying something like, why aren't you doing anything about this storm in my life? Again, don't you care? The scenario in our lives goes something like this. The storm begins to arise, and we think, I can handle this. I'm a good Christian. I can handle this. The struggle then begins to get a little harder, a little more difficult. We begin to get a bit more frantic. And finally, we come to the end of ourselves, and we cry out to God for help. We come to our senses, if you will. Oh, my gosh, I haven't really even prayed and asked God for help. And we pray, and we find him sleeping, and whatever that translates to in our experiences there and we think what are you doing asleep don't you care about me 
I think there's three things we learn in this particular passage about the Lord and about our walk with the Lord from this passage. The first is this. Sometimes the, the cost of following Jesus means getting into a boat and riding out a storm. Okay? I'm speaking metaphorically. But sometimes the cost of following Jesus means getting into a boat and riding out a storm. We like to think that our decision to follow, because of our decision to follow Jesus, that the rest of our life is going to be smooth sailing. We'd like to think that. We'd like to think because of our decision to follow Jesus that he will reward us with a life of comfort and ease. But the reality is, I'm sure that many of us have come to realize this already, the reality is that's just not the case. And so as I've said a few times during our study, life is going to bring with it challenges, whether you are a Christian or not. Life is going to bring your way challenges. And it's a mistake when those challenges come to automatically assume that they are in your life because you are outside of the will of God. They might be in your life because you're outside of the will of God. Sometimes life's difficulties are the result of our walking outside of God's will. And we are experiencing the consequences, if you will, of our decisions or our behavior. As Galatians chapter 6 says, we are reaping what we are sowed. Sometimes the difficulties of life are because we are outside of God's will. But they are not always the result of being outside of God's will. In fact, take notice of two verses this morning that we've already read. Look again at verse 23. It says, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. They are in this storm specifically because they were following Jesus. Do you see that there? They could have been comfortably sitting back in Capernaum by a fire, enjoying the thunderstorm that is out there, um, and just having a good time and relaxing. But here they are experiencing a storm as a direct result of following Jesus. Now, if you're like me, when you experience a life-threatening storm as a result of your following to, you're trying to follow Jesus, sometimes I begin to think, Lord, did I, did I make a mistake in hearing you? I thought I heard you. I thought this was the direction you want, but here I am in a storm. Now, there's an error in that thinking. And I I imagine you could pick it up. There's a presumption in that thinking that in choosing to follow Jesus, there will be no storms. And that's a pattern of thinking that we need to change in our lives. Discipleship and storms are not mutually exclusive. In fact, as I said, sometimes a storm is a direct result of your decision to follow. Now, let me prove my point again. Look at verse 18. There in verse 18, which we've already read, Jesus says, it says that Jesus gave them orders to go to the other side. And so they didn't mishear the Lord. They didn't think, I thought the Lord wanted me to go here, but I guess I was wrong. He gave them specific orders to get in the boat. It wasn't disobedience that put them uh, in place to experience this storm. It was obedience that put them in this place to experience this storm. It wasn't mishearing the voice of the Lord that put them here. They were here because Jesus wanted them here. They were here, and I don't like this in my theology, to be honest with you. They were here because this was the means by which Jesus was going to teach them something new about himself that they would never be able to learn any other way. That's why they are in this particular storm. And so let's keep reading to discover what it is Jesus wants to teach them. Look at verse 26. He said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? 
And then he rose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? You see that there in verse 27. Then the men marveled and said to themselves, or they discovered, that even the winds and the sea obey him. They had already discovered that leprosy obeys him. They've already discovered that sicknesses obey him, that demons obey him, but they had no idea that even the winds or the wind and the sea obey him. And if you want to go deeper in your walk and in your understanding of who God is, sometimes the only way to teach you is to bring you out on a field trip. That's the only way that the lesson can be learned. As I said earlier, they could have been cozy and comfortable by a fire in Capernaum, but then their understanding of the Lord would have remained limited. To remain in Capernaum would have resulted in their growth as disciples being stunted. And so that's a choice that each one of us is going to have to make. Do you want to remain safe and comfortable and at ease in your Christian walk? Or do you want to obey the Lord, following him wherever he may go? That's the place of spiritual growth, and it's only found in the latter when you follow him wherever he may go. Now you say, well, I've done that. Well, to you, I say what I say to myself. I remind you that you need to keep doing that. That's not a one and done decision. If you're going to continue to grow in the Lord, then you must continue to make decisions that stretch you. You must continue to make decisions that make you uncomfortable. You must continue to make decisions that even perhaps scare you to death as it is these disciples and cause you to question whether God actually cares for you. That sounds awful, doesn't it? If I spoke a different way, I would say, this stinks, with a different word that everyone uses nowadays. That stinks. I don't want that. I'm not signing up for that. It sounds awful. It does, but it's not. It does sound awful, but it's really not awful because Jesus is there with you in the boat. So he's telling you to get in the boat, but he's there with you in the boat. The one whom even the wind and the sea obeys is right there with us in the midst of that storm. Are you running around frantically? He's there. Complete and imperfect, incomplete and perfect peace. Though the circumstances may cause you to forget that he is there, or if you do remember that he's there, cause you to think that he doesn't care about you, the reality is this, you can be certain that he is there and that he does care. Life storms are not easy for the disciple of Christ, but they can be good for the disciple of Christ if we let them. And so we look to discover what the Lord wants to teach us about himself in the storms. We learn to trust him in greater ways through life's storms. We discover his strength, his power, his might in life's storms. The title of our message today is this, There is a Cost of following Jesus. Now, earlier in the passage, and I, I have my wonderings about why this event occurred right after what we read. And, and so let me try to give you the scenario as far as I think it. You have these people, would-be disciples, that are coming to Jesus and saying, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, well, I don't even have a home. You sure you want to follow me? Another guy says, I'll follow you wherever you go. Hey, but I, I got to first do this thing. Jesus said, no, you got to forget that thing, and you got to come follow me right now if you're going to follow me at all. And then the disciples get in the boat, 
and they discover something about what it's going to mean to follow Jesus for themselves. And so here's what I wonder. I wonder if as they're getting in the boat, perhaps they're talking about it themselves, or maybe they're just thinking these things. And part of the reason why I wonder this is because this is probably what I would think. It's too bad those guys aren't as committed as I am. See, I'll go wherever Jesus wants to go. I'll do whatever Jesus wants to do. And Jesus says, you know what? You need a stretching. We need to go on a field trip. And he puts me in a boat, and he snaps his finger, and he brings the winds and the sea in, and it gets all frantic, and I get all frantic, and I start getting mad at other people and bumping other people on purpose but pretending it was an accident. And I start getting all frustrated with the circumstances, and I finally turn to him, and I say, get up and do something. He says, oh, okay. I thought you would follow me wherever I go and do whatever I did. Now you're yelling at me, and you're accusing me of not caring about you. Jot that down in your notebook. It's a lesson that you've just learned. You see, these disciples needed to learn the same thing that those other guys on the shores there needed to learn. There is a cost of following Jesus. He's the Lord, and you are not the Lord. And he'll keep pushing you and keep pushing you and keep pushing you a little bit further and further and further in your walk with him. And every time he'll invite you to respond. And you can say, no mas, I'm done. I'm staying here. I can't go any further. Or you could keep on going with him and learning more and more and more about him. There's a cost to following Jesus, but I'll just say this to end. It is worth every single penny, which is a lesson that I'm trying to learn, and I'm sure you are as well. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of salvation. We know there's no cost to us for the gift of salvation. Certainly it cost your son dearly. But lordship, Lord, costs us our entire lives. It causes us to relinquish our will and to give it over to you and say, all right, Lord, the great exchange, I'll take your life, you take mine. And so, Father, I just pray for us as a church. When I look out, I see many of the faces here, and I know there are good brothers and sisters that really love you and want you in their lives. But, Lord, I know my experience, and I'm sure theirs, Sometimes it's difficult to keep saying yes. But sometimes we just want our own way and we want to do our own thing. Sometimes we we just want to say to you, Lord, everything I've given should be enough. I'm tired of giving any more of my heart to you and sacrificing our will. And yet, Lord, I know and I'm convinced that your ways and your plans and your will for our life is really, really good for us. And it's the only thing that is ultimately good for us. And so, Father, as a a collection of believers this morning, sort of standing, sitting, I guess, side by side with our brothers and sisters in the faith, Lord, sort of uh, encouraged by sort of the strength in numbers, Lord, this morning we commit ourselves in a fresh way for you to do whatever it is you want to do in our hearts. Take us wherever it is you want to take us. Teach us whatever it is you want to teach us. Make us more like your son. Lord, refine that refining fire that it would just burn away, Lord, all of that dross, all of those impurities of our flesh so that the new life that you seek to create in us, Lord, 
would be the only thing that remains. Holy Spirit, I pray you would speak to our hearts, as no doubt you've already been doing. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.